0: Welcome to the Truth CSGO Podcast, episode 101. I previously thought of this episode as the identity episode. I don't know what it is now. It's a beast. Uh, let's hook in. <laughs> hey guys, this is Lectro. I hey guess I'm Guardian. This is Dabs. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Ferret. Godzilla. Clash This is Kerrigan. Are you listening to Truth. The Truth. The Truth. The Truth. The, Truth? the Truth. the Truth. the Truth. the Truth CSGO Podcast. The Truth CSGO Podcast. The Truth CSGO Podcast. Are we rushing in? Or are we going sneaky peeky like... So in this podcast, we've looked at our lives through the prism of Counter-Strike. It's been a fun exercise to try and identify the universal through such an absurdly specific lens. And it's been very difficult to describe exactly what this podcast is to uh, people in the real world. Um, But as close listeners will know, I'm not a professional CSGO player. I'm actually a screenwriter. I work on movie scripts. And in CS terms, I've been a pro for about six years, and I'm probably the equivalent of a rifler uh, on Sprout, <laughs> although the last couple of years I've done a NATO sappix and subbed in for a couple of top 10 teams. Anyway, <clears throat> I thought today, instead of looking at life through CS, we can actually look at it through the prism of story. Basically, this is some shit I've been thinking about for many years as part of my work, but also as part of how I see my life. In 2004, a couple of Australians, James Wan and Lee Wan-l, wrote, directed and starred in a horror film called Saw. It was a smash hit, and the script, which began with two strangers waking up chained in a dirty basement without the memory of how they got there, was the apex of a zeitgeist made most popular by the Bourne Identity two years prior. The appeal of the instant mystery had the benefit of novelty back then, and now it merely retains the benefit of being tailor-made for an audience primed by watching shorter things on the web. Now, having taught screenwriting for film and writing for video games, the appeal of this sort of instant story is most evident when first-time screenwriters or game makers come to creating their inaugural scenarios. So often my students... I haven't had students for, for many years, but they're, so often they used to begin with their hero or the player waking up and not knowing how or why they are where they are. And in some sense, this is because it's easier to write a story in which you work out the mystery in the same order your audience will also experience it. In another sense, it's because it mirrors the way we experience life. We are born into a tiled room, screaming and bloody, chained to an identity we didn't choose in a room with people we don't know, without knowledge of ourselves or how we got there. And if you're a young writer or creative person who hasn't begun to grasp the context of your own life, it's only natural that this would be the form of communication, creative communication, that you might turn to first. Now, in the wake of the deluge of copycat scripts that flooded the market post-Saw, a new mutation of this narrative phenomenon appeared, the three-months-earlier trope. And this is where a film begins with a dramatic, tense, context-free situation and then flashes back to three-months-earlier, or variations thereof. A good example is 2014's The Imitation Game, an apt name for a screenplay that carved its vital statistics from the structural fashions of the time And it begins with eight minutes of mystery. Alan Turing's apartment has been broken into. He's interviewed by detectives who then leave the scene and say to each other, I think Alan's hiding something, at which point the story flashes back to when Turing was 11. Now, one thing we might be able to flippantly glean from this is that a film's capacity for resonance will seriously begin to flag after eight minutes without the addition of context. Context is the bedrock of meaning and this is the same in our lives. So let's look at the most basic form of a story <clears throat> so we can start sort of digesting this information and the most basic form of a story is the sentence made up of a subject a verb and an object for instance the cow jumped over the moon This is a sentence, but it's also a story. And it's an exciting sentence in the moment, a cow jumping over a moon, but it's actually devoid of meaning and therefore resonance. Context is required. So let's try it with some context. The cow jumped over the moon. Flashback to three months earlier when the cow tried to jump over the moon and couldn't make it. The cow's father told the cow, you'll never amount to anything, just like your old man. I tried to jump over the moon and couldn't, and you're just like me. So the cow went into her barn and cried and cried and vowed she would show her old man, and so she trained hard for the next three months. Some writers call context like this stakes, and it's interesting to wonder what creates stakes in our own lives. Recently, I read the diaries my grandfather kept during World War II when he was building bridges for Allied troops in Libya and constructing trails for Australian soldiers in Papua New Guinea as an engineer. And the diaries uh, were laced with the letters that he wrote my grandmother. They were newly engaged and their desire to be reunited was palpable. Their aspirations for post-war life were inspiring. It made me realize that I'd been missing some valuable context to my own story. Namely, the struggles of the man and woman who had created a life out of which sprung my father, who in turn married my mother and created a nest for me. So this was a crucial piece of context that gave weight to my own use of time every day. How was I using this gift of my existence, an opportunity that they'd fought for? This opportunity that they'd planned and schemed for? In other words, in the screenplay of my life, the movie of my life, reading these letters was like a flashback. And when my story resumed in the present, there was a new layer of meaning to current events. There's an Arabic proverb that reads something like, he who does not have a past does not have a future. And the oracle at Delphi said similar, know thyself. So this is not the limits of our analogy. This is just the beginning. Let's go back to the basics of the sentence again. A sentence in its most elementary form is structured in three parts. A subject, a verb, an object. Something does something. The cow jumped over the moon. Now, a collection of sentences will tell a novel or a longer story, and a collection of images can form a movie. Similarly, there are three acts in a play as laid out by Aristotle, a beginning, middle and end, a subject, verb and object, and a modern Hollywood screenplay is simply the diamond polished from the coal of thousands of years of playwriting, and features basically the same structure. So in the first act of Die Hard, terrorists take the Nakatomi building hostage and Bruce Willis is trapped. In the second act, Bruce fights the terrorists and tries to free his wife, and in the third act, Bruce defeats the terrorists and rescues his wife. Boiled down again to a sentence, it's a man Rescues his wife. Because our brains think in language, it informs basically all of our communication. The more wide travelling the communication, the more essential the elements. For instance, and we'll talk more about this later, the modern pop song. It's a crystallization of a millennia of shared feelings and it has the same structure as the sentence a verse, a pre chorus, and a chorus. Let's listen to an example, Breathless by the Cause. The verse. The pre chorus from you I cannot have i a losing will to try can hide it, can find it so and now the chorus. So you can hear the three progressions, the three building blocks in there that tell a story. Boiled down again, it's the singer succumbs to the lover. Just in case you think that's a cheesy example, that song was written by the genius Mutt Lang, who wrote all of Shania Twain's hits, and you try writing that many hit songs. Now the first question to answer is, why does this structure resonate so much with us in English-speaking society? And the answer is probably along the lines of the idea that we think in patterns that mirror the same linearity of our lives and development of meaning in our brains. That's how our language was formed. Pretty sure smarter people than me, like um, (coughs) Noam Chomsky, have made (laughs) this sort of connection in their life's work. But that's what it seems to be to me. And it's important to clarify here that the language... um, is different for different cultures because other cultures like the Japanese have slightly different syntax at the heart of their language so the stories are often differently structured that's outside the scope of this podcast or as the Japanese would say this podcast a scope it's outside of so anyway either way this three-part structure plays out fractally again and again as sentences build novels as melodies build music as sequences build films, but also in the same way the days, the weeks, the months, and the years build into the entirety of a human life. So let's get down to some tacks of the brass variety, because maybe it'll be interesting, I don't know. TBD. Now, the average modern screen uh, screenplay for a film, formatted to industry standards, is approximately 100 pages, with each page generally representing a minute of on-screen time. Um, at least the way it's kind of formatted professionally. <clears throat> now, the way most Hollywood screenplays have been structured now for the better part of a century is, as I said, through three acts, but the middle act is essentially twice as long as the first and the third act. Let me illustrate. So the first act generally ends on page 25, the second on page 75, and the third on page 100. And the first act is where the hero is established, and the beginning of the second act is where they are thrust into a new world, basically the verb, uh, an adventure. And at the midpoint of this second act, at the midpoint of the whole script, or or around page 50 on our 100-page script, there's a shift in the story dynamics. In our sentence, the cow jumped over the moon, this is the over point, where the true path of the subject or the hero is made visible. And in story terms, you can think of this as the goal for the cow shifting. So for the first half of the story, the cow is focused on getting high enough to clear the moon, but for the second half, it's focused on landing safely. Anyway, the second act uh, ends at page 75, as I mentioned, and that's when the hero is at the end of their initial momentum, and a final clarification of the journey is needed. As a screenwriter, I call these parts Act 1, Act 2A, Act 2B, and Act 3. Why are they not just in four acts? (laughs) That's a good point. I don't know. In life, we call them childhood, adulthood, middle age, and old age. Now, as I mentioned before, the most enduring structure for pop music shares this form. Act 1 consists of a verse, a pre-chorus, and a chorus, like we heard in the example from the chorus. Act 2A is another verse, another pre-chorus, and another chorus, but each of these have building developments and extra sounds on top of them. Act 2B is a breakdown and then Act 3 is a double chorus. Let's go back to screenplays for the moment. Now the first 10 pages of this 100-page screenplay generally present a main character with a problem. Firstly, an internal problem, an emotional need. This mirrors the problem that is established in your life or the main character's life in the first 10 years, often the first 12 months or what psychologists call the attachment phase. Now the hero or heroine or protagonists in the films have an emotional problem, a problem in their character, as opposed to the world around them. And if one or more of our parents weren't able to respond to our normal cries for attention or our needs as a child and instead ignored us or dealt with us in a dysfunctional way, we will have learned to pretend that we don't have these feelings and consequently look down on people who do. As Good As It Gets is a great example of this in a film. Jack Nicholson plays a character who derides the other characters in his life for their emotionality and has basically squashed all of his uh, emotional needs to the point it's manifested itself in obsessive hand-washing. On the flip side, if your parents responded to your cries for help with their own cries for help, you might have learned to squash your own feelings for the sake of being a people-pleaser. This is known in the Catholic religion as original sin, having original sin, because the dysfunction of our ancestors has been transmuted between generations and we basically have to atone for it. In Hinduism, it's the karma from a past life. Now, it's important to note that sometimes it's not the main character in film, in screenplays, who is presented with a flaw. Sometimes it's actually the world around them that is presented as flawed, and the main character whose job, whose journey in the film is to change that world. This is basically the story of Jesus, and it represents a struggle no less difficult than the change within, to change ourselves within. Um, And this is an experience we've all had, a perspective we've all had, had at some point, that we are right and the world is wrong. Um, It drives a lot of revenge movies, and I'm sure it drove some of my adolescent despair. I have a feeling that whichever of these two narratives vibrates with us the most is actually correlated with the schism we see in the current US political divide, um, and probably in most politics, actually. I think that the more liberal we are, the more likely we are to feel our own flaws, and the more conservative, the more likely we are to see flaws in the world around us. Um... I'm not sure. That's a wild theory I haven't really dug into and a hot air balloon ride we're not going to take right now. But to make things simple, let's step back. Let's stick with the story form of the flawed hero So we are established in the world as someone with a flaw. And that flaw is an emotional reaction to a trauma, a way to defend and soothe ourselves. Not everyone has an unhappy childhood, but everyone suffers the trauma of being born, basically ripped against your will from the warmth of the womb. And similarly, a trauma at the beginning or before a film is usually what's caused the main character an overreaction in their behavior. Like Nemo's father in Finding Nemo, who lost so many children, so many eggs, so many babies, that he's basically now really overprotective of his one remaining egg, Nemo. And in Taken, essentially the live-action version of Finding Nemo, it's the separation from his wife that has created a monster out of Liam Neeson. In Karate Kid, it's the trauma of Daniel having moved to a new city against his will, being torn away from his friends. Even the cause song I played before establishes someone emotionally frozen who's not even living their life. They're just paralyzed by this other person. Uh, The singer sings, the daylight's fading slowly and the time with you is standing still. So anyway, after the page 10 of your life, you begin to establish a personality. You might have noticed this with brothers and sisters or nephews and nieces or the children of your own. They don't really start becoming people until they're eight or nine. And then all of a sudden, they're individuals. They talk back to you. They make their own jokes. They want privacy. They want to meet new people or hang out with their own friends. And they laugh at you when, when you kind of suggest that you might get a TikTok account or something along those lines. This is when they, just like you did before them, really lay down or begin laying down the pattern their lives are going to take for the next 30 or 40 years. And this stage... Uh, not only in, in screenplays but in your life it's kind of when you solidify the pattern of just how you're going to deal with your quote-unquote trauma and this is borne out when you come up against your problem <clears throat> with Marlin, that's when his son nemo goes missing in your life it's when you step out into the world usually it's high school um And suddenly you have to deal with expectations. Naturally, of course, you use the survival techniques you've learned at home. This dysfunctional talent or talents that you've developed to deal with your trauma. For instance, you might shut out people and draw by yourself in the library. Or you might enroll in every single activity you can so that you feel validated by the adults around you. Uh, You might uh, throw yourself into Counter-Strike. Uh, and try to climb up the ranks obsessively. Um, you might play truant from school and get arrested just to get attention. You might, like daniel son start fights with other kids. <clears throat> but you'll generally take this behavior into your departure as well, from this demi-world into the real world, albeit with a period of information gathering or some might call it dithering at university. <laughs> But anyway, graduation, this is what Joseph Campbell called crossing the threshold when you leave your parents in the environment of your adolescence and go out into the real world. It's basically the equivalent of when uh, Luke Skywalker left Tatooine for the first time or when Liam Neeson stepped into the streets of Paris. And it's here where you are faced with a choice. Continue in your dysfunctional behavior or adapt to a more realistic view and hence a way of dealing with the world classically we as humans will take the path of least resistance and do everything we can before we are forced by the impending death of our soul to redefine the world or admit that the imperfections of the world are mostly reflected in our view of it more on that in a second and so like the heroes of films we will continue to act in dysfunction for as long as we can from pages 30 to 60 or act 2a as i mentioned before the verb Pretty much the age of 20 to 40. So this is the part of the screenplay where the hero pursues the goal of their teenage years. And this is why the second verse in pop songs repeat themselves, because we generally tend to double down. (laughs) You go after what you want by repeating what you've learned. So Marlon continues in his frantic sense of overprotectiveness for Nemo, because it seems to be getting him closer to his son. It's the only way he knows how to do it. It's the only way he knows how to parent. You continue to shut yourself off from people and drawing the library because the reactions you got from your artwork made you feel so special, or you keep getting arrested to get the attention you were lacking as a child. After all, it's gotten you this far and it might be a full 20 years before the lights come up in your disco to reveal the ugliness of diminishing returns. Now this repetition of your first verse, your pre-chorus and chorus has one important distinction. This time... In your act two, in your 20s to your 40s, you have the confidence and resources of someone a lot older. Like Breathless, there's new lyrics in the second verse and some new harmonies in the second chorus. It's more of the same, it's only bigger. And your illustrations are being sold left and right. (laughs) If you're a drug dealer, you're dealing meth to dozens of people. And you're working ridiculous hours to please your boss in the hopes of getting a promotion. So it's often not until we get to the epiphanic midpoint of our lives that we realize the language of the program we've been running on. The midpoint of the screenplay is exactly where this moment happens as well. Now, for some in their lives, this is the same as a midlife crisis, where you reach the summit of your teenage goals, illustrating the cover of The New Yorker, if you're the drawing example we've been going with, or a prison sentence, if you're the Uh, drug dealer example we've been going with, or a CEO if you uh, have been chasing that uh, external validation perhaps, or uh, a power, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, seeing this horizon, if you do summit that goal, it can make you wonder, why did I want this? Was it me who wanted it, or did I want it because I was told to? Why did I tell myself, for instance, that I didn't want a family, or why did I concentrate on my family and never my own dreams? And at what point, you might ask yourself, did I deny myself? A certain desire? What was it in reaction to? Now, something screenwriters often say is that this is the point the character gets what they want, but not what they need. And they suddenly realize in terror that what they need is far more important than what they want. And why terror? Because it is precisely the actions of going after what they want that has now endangered what they need. It is precisely everything that you have done up until the midpoint of your life that has gotten you really far away from the kind of place you actually need to be to be happy. Liam Neeson has now endangered his daughter further through his reckless actions Marlon is further than ever from his son Daniel-san is now enrolled in a karate tournament for which he isn't prepared And the singer of Breathless is basically in danger of dying The midlife crisis, the classic midlife crisis often is punctuated by a divorce at this point A separation from children or the rude awakening of a world around you that says You have to change or you will lose everything now on the flip side, back in the late 20th century when screenplays were generally about 120 pages, the midpoint was sometimes associated with a phrase, sex at 60, because it was often the halfway point when the hero would consummate a personal relationship with another character and realize that what they needed all along was actually a true connection with another person. And this is because trauma cannot be puzzled out by yourself in a room. The damage from our past cannot be laid out on a table in an apartment and taped together by yourself before you go out into the world. Trying to fix yourself by yourself from the inside is akin to rubbing a wine stain with the same cloth. You need salt. You need other people to spread and disperse it and soak it up and share the stain, share the load across a larger nervous system than your own. Now, to backtrack just slightly, you can't reach this point properly unless you've completely individuated. And in the classical hero's journey, the individuation takes place through the trials of a hero in the first half, the teachings of a mentor and the assistance of a helper. So by the midpoint, the hero has created an identity informed by the past, the mentor, and is looking forward to the future, the helper, and is now capable of an intimate relationship with another without the threat of dissolution of their id. The moment that I mentioned before, that they recognize what they need at the exact moment they have endangered it, is called irony. All good stories have irony because they reflect the central irony of life. This reflects the central irony of existence, which is that wisdom is gained precisely at the moment the energy of youth is lost. Now, often at this stage, at this midpoint stage, you might have kids who are going through their own ego emergence as their puberty hits, and you need to put your ego aside to make space for their development. This is a point at which the happy ending and the tragic endings are defined, or what Aristotle called the comedic and the tragic. If, at this point in your life, you realise what your true need is and decide to change, the stage is set for an ending in which you get what you need, regardless of whether you get what you want or not. Now, if, on the other hand, you double down again into your dysfunction, the second half of your second act will, of course, seem easier at first, but the third act will be utterly ruinous. Now, the form of most Hollywood films are therefore comedic in uh, Aristotelian terms, uh, but they have a seeming defeat at the climax of the second act, which then leads into an eventual triumph. The form of most pop songs uh, by this model are tragic, with a victory at the climax of the second act, but a thematic defeat in the final two choruses. In Breathless, the chorus song, we can clearly hear how the singer, lost in the thrill of the act, Uh, to be guitar solo then doubles down in her love for dissolution and completely surrenders to the refrain and the wish for death by continuing to uh, implore her lover to render her breathless now music is at its most effective i think when it's reveling in this nihilistic surrender to an emotional want or a joyful surrender to an emotional want whatever i guess the emotion is anyway the difficulty Um, in your life, let's get back to your life, in the second part of this life and in these screenplays, is that once you've realized what the stakes are, once you've realized your flaw and what you're fighting for, um, then it becomes doubly important that you change, but also doubly difficult. Because now you're fighting not only the danger in the world, you're also fighting for your very soul. Now Liam Neeson not only has to find his daughter, he's also fighting to regain his humanity. And Daniel-san not only has a tournament to win, but he also has to uphold Miyagi's legacy and honor. Now, whether this happens for you at the age of 40 or 45 or 39 or 25 or 50, it's once you've understood this truth that the true journey of your life becomes illuminated. And this is where Socrates' supposed utterance at his trial, the unexamined life is not worth living, really begins to make sense, as your own lack of examination may give you the sense that the days you have lived up until this point have basically been discarded behind you like fish heads just washed through the gunnel holes of your trawler. As you race now towards the climax of your life, as the screenplay races towards the end of the film, the stakes of your story and the stories become higher. You now have the tools to know what you need to do and there are no excuses. It's interesting to note here that it's really only the prospect of your soul's death that causes the change in you. As Jung said, the only thing that moves nature is causal necessity, and that goes for human nature too. Without necessity, he said, nothing budges, the human personality least of all. So essentially what you're faced with is a fate worse than death, and your only chance for survival is change. A little sidebar here. It's important to acknowledge that along the way, these are not the only stories that resonate with us these hero's journey movies life can be confusing and paralyzing and there are stories that reflect the overwhelming difficulty of moving past these clashes of instinct and learning of ego and id and illustrate uh, how we can sort of become stuck at these various stages at these various acts two novels come to mind the catcher in the rye which speaks to this paralysis between the first act and the second act we face in adolescence uh, the Magus by John Fowles. It similarly nails the wilderness of Act Two in our 20s. And two films uh, come to mind as well. The documentary Hoop Dreams, which straddles both of uh, these stages. And the film Jules and Jim, a film about three characters who basically cannot recognize their own midpoints. Anyway, back to the screenplay. Now, the climax of a 100-page screenplay that generally comes around page 85 or 90 is the ultimate test where the way we conducted our life in the first half, the way the main character conducted their life in the first half of the film, it really comes back to bite us and we have the final showdown between our want and our need. This is the moment that asks of us whether we have grown strong enough to override not only the dysfunction of our childhood, but the very problems our adjustment to that childhood has created for us. So Marlon has rescued Nemo, but now they are both trapped, and he must let Nemo go into the world and trust him to save them both. It's a surrender, it's a transcendent moment, it's Luke giving into the force, it's daniel son closing his eyes to deliver the crane kick. And if we take our earlier example of a marriage breakdown, for instance, at the midpoint, this moment comes after the shock of the divorce and the introspection that has come from a shattered world. Um, some 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 trials, some misguided attempts, maybe to rebuild this with you know uh, using the new tools we're trying to learn. Uh, from the lessons we've learned at the midpoint and this is where the question is posed can you return to your family with loving arms and let go of the hurt and blame and embrace them once again with yourself truthfully laid bare now the final 10 pages of a movie the final 10 minutes are oftentimes concerned with an unexpected fight depending on the genre of the film but generally end in a triumphant return to civilization with the powers that you the hero have discovered and in this day and age that's characterized as a happy retirement surrounded by family and friends with the satisfaction of a legacy that will continue upon your death um, Marlon has Nemo and their relationship is better than ever the Liam Neeson has his daughter and now the trust of his wife daniel son has his friendship with Miyagi the love of Ali and the title of champion um, <clears throat> the divorce <laughs> example we've been following is uh, a reunification Uh, a healing. So anyway, this is kind of so far so simple, right? We're just making an analogy between screenplays and your life. There's nothing earth-shaking. There are plenty of comparative mythologists who've laid this out far more eloquently than I. But where it really gets interesting for me is in these structural deviations from this vanilla template. Once you start thinking in this way, it becomes really interesting to note differences in the narratives around us and to further extrapolate humanistic meanings from them now one of the first to capture my attention was back in my late teens in the year 2000 when daft punk released the dance song one more time their verse was an old funk sample their pre-chorus added a hi-hat and the chorus added some vocals but then the song got to the breakdown at 2b and it was so long it was almost unbelievable anyone around at the time will recall whenever that song dropped it was basically all fun and games until the breakdown happened, the beat disappeared, and the singer Roman Anthony sang his inane house grunts almost a cappella, and you'd be standing on the dance floor for what felt like decades until the beat and melody kicked back in. At the time, I was amazed at the gall of Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homem christo to make a dance floor stand around that long. In reality, actually, each part of One More Time goes for eight bars of eight beats except for the breakdown, which goes for 12 bars of 8 beats. The tambourine comes in, jabating us into thinking that we're done. <laughs> Narrator, they weren't. Because then the tambourine just drops right out again. One more time A celebration we're gonna do it all right Tonight Hey, just it music got to so then the breakdown goes for another four bars of eight beats which <laughs> you know it's only one and a half times longer than the other parts but on the dance floor the tension was almost unbearable and there was something cowboy about how rude it was and how bold and speaking of cowboys, sometime later, when I was studying screenplays, I noticed a similar structure in the 1969 film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, whose screenplay was written by William Goldman. If you haven't seen it, it's a western about fun loving crooks, Butch Cassidy, played by Paul Newman, and his sideca- sidekick Sundance, uh, played by Robert Redford, and Butch's girlfriend, Etta Place, played by Catherine Ross, and their adventures basically robbing banks. At exactly the second part of the second act, Act 2B, a repetition in structure occurred that was extraordinarily long. Butch and Sundance are on the run from a super posse who are paid to hunt them down by local sheriffs. They keep being chased and the posse just keep coming and coming and coming until finally, Butch and Sundance manage to evade them by jumping off a cliff into a river. It's the same structural cowboy move It's the same fuck you to an audience at the exactly the same place. At the exactly the same place. Ah, The days of good English have went. Now, at this point in time, you may be thinking that I'm nuts. But hold on to your helplines. We're going to go deeper. Identifying this anomaly of structure illuminates further similarities. There are three main chords in one more time. A. G. And F. And there are three main characters in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. A is Butch Cassidy, the anchor chord. G is the contrarian Sundance Kid. And F is Etta Place, the love interest constantly threatening to break up the friendship of the two men. Butch, 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 Sundance, Butch, 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 Sundance, Butch, 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 Sundance, Etta, 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 Sundance (laughs) So Throughout the sequences of the film Butch is actually the verse Sundance is the pre-chorus And then Etta is the chorus If you expand this structure out And in your life You are the flawed Butch Sundance is your ally Your friends, your family, whatever And Etta represents your relationship with ambiguity With the ambiguous, with the unknown It's a sense of what you want So this is as pure as it gets. With just two notes, with just two characters, you don't have a song. With just Butch and Sundance, you don't have an interesting movie. With just a subject and a verb, you don't have a meaningful sentence. With just a verse and a pre-chorus, you don't have a satisfying song. With just your id and your ego, your life is just a spinning wheel. This is what it sounds like. It's enough to drive you crazy. It's brain damaging without the release of that F chord. In both of these works, in Sundance and in One More Time... The three ingredients were so potent in the stereo richness of the samples and its compression in One More Time, and the charisma of the actors and the wit of their dialogue in Butch Cassidy, that the structures holding them could afford the tension of a bulbous breakdown. And the three elements perfectly expressed the desire for change. The A chord's desire to get past the G to reach the F, which then leads to the chorus. It's a clearly defined want, which, when realized, leads us to the need. So what this kind of suggests to me is that we have to be honest about what we want before we can understand what we need. Because after all, in the early parts of the screenplay of our life, that's what the dysfunction of the world asks us not to do. It wants us to deny the fact that we are sad or lonely or gay or different or vulnerable. The harder we have worked to deny this, the stronger that super posse that comes after us has to be. So just for fun, let's further stretch this comparison to, <laughs> well, probably wobbling point. Now, in both song and movie, the elements are repurposed. One More Time was a chop-up of Eddie John's 70s disco hit, More Spell on You, and Butch was a relensing of the 50s westerns of John Wayne. Great art may feel like a revolution, but it's always a development of what came before. Just like, as we said before, a great life is most often one informed by knowledge of history of personal history without a sense of that history our actions basically have the hollow ring of a clap in a cupboard So what's the benefit of all this pattern recognition and ephemera analysis? One might be diagnosis, are you confused? Are you stuck, are you feeling like you've lost touch with who you are? If so, perhaps you can ask yourself, where are you in your movie? Where are you in your song? If you're stuck repeating a verse, feeling like you never get to a chorus, you never even get to the pre-chorus, you could be stuck in your id, your ego. Or not allowing both to influence your actions. Are you stuck between page 25 and 50 and kind of feel like you're just drifting along? Perhaps you're not committing fully to what you want, thus never reaching the summit of your desires, or conversely, smacking your ass on rock bottom. Are you in the throes of your midpoint crisis or any identity crisis? Are you questioning everything and ready to toss your life savings into a Porsche? Are you ready to leave med school the week before graduation? Are you ready to run from the church the morning of your wedding? Maybe you need to reconnect with someone you've neglected, a mentor, a helper. Maybe you need a flashback, a context-gathering experience to realize the meaning in your life that was there before you had any life in you maybe like butch cassidy uh the sheriff of your previous bad decisions has gone Fuck it that's enough i'm sick of you just robbing banks and living like there's no consequences i'm going to send a posse a super posse after you and it's going to be faceless and relentless and it's going to threaten to wipe you out completely and it's not going to stop until you jump off a cliff And if you can't swim like Sundance, well, tough titties. Because isn't it funny that the breakdown of a song occurs at the same part in a screenplay where the character often has a breakdown, at the exact part of our lives where we have breakdowns? Maybe if you want to be a human being, you need to give yourself permission to have that breakdown. You need to pull the beat out. You need to deconstruct the elements. give yourself some time. Tell yourself, "Well, this is the natural order of events. This may not be the second act of my life. It might simply be the second act of my 20s that I'd been putting off. Remember, this is a fractal w- <clears throat> pardon me, this is a fractal way of looking at communication, at the world, at linearity, at narrative. So this might, this might not even be the second act of your 20s. It might be the second act of your Tuesday morning. Either way, it's time for a goddamn reckoning or a reassessment. And when you're ready, you try putting that tambourine back in. Just give it a good rattle and then realize it doesn't work. You're not ready. Maybe your life is a film and it's time to go through the pain of change. Maybe your Tuesday morning is like a pop song and you're going to double down because you might have gotten it right the first time. So you're going to do it one more time. What sort of movie or song or story do you want your life to be like? Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? And even more basically, if you were to write a sentence that described your life, just a subject, verb, and object, what would you write? Are you preparing yourself to jump over the moon? Are you currently jumping over the moon? Is there a cow jumping over you? Are you watching another cow jump over the moon? I would say the flip side of recognizing your life in a movie, in a book, in a song, in a sentence is that the wider your exposure to certain types of creative communication, the more broadly you may think about your life, which is to say... It might be helpful to make an effort to take in something that isn't simply what's fed to you. Instead of mainlining the Harry Potter movies for the fourth time, go to Roger Ebert's list of great movies. Find something you've never heard of and watch it. Instead of reading Robert Greene's 50 Laws of Power, because... Your cousin recommended it to you. Walk into the biggest library in your city. Walk through the shelves until the title of something really jumps out at you and read that. Could be that your subconscious latches onto some learning that it needs to get to the next stage of your screenplay. Instead of just listening to what YouTube's algorithm looks like, go to radio.com, that's with five O's, and listen to some Greek stuff from the 1950s. We create the narrative for our life, and oftentimes what we create is constrained by what we can imagine. Just like your dinner is only going to be as good as the ingredients in your fridge. So why settle for mac and cheese? It's your fucking life. Get a big pot of water, salt it really well, drop a live fighting lobster into that bitch. So I don't think there'll be another episode uh, like this. This only came out because I was kind of planning it about a year ago, Uh, just writing up little bits and bobs. Um, This episode was actually recorded in my third quarantine during the COVID-19 pandemic. If it were possible to use that as an excuse for the depths to which I disappeared up my own anus, I would, but I can't, so I won't. Music was by Beaufort, Daft Punk, and The Cause. While this podcast is on an indefinite blackout, you can still join our Discord, the link to which is on my Twitter account, at the thetruthcsgo. I'm back home now in sunny Australia, and we'll be trying to get to Nova 2 once I'm free of this hotel, so hit us up there if you're in the southern i and want to play some MM. But until next time, enjoy the game.